Hey, pooches. What up, what up? I was about to burp, but I don't know whether I should burp or say what up, what up. So I just suppressed it. And now my throat kind of hurts. <laughs> you realize I edit these after, right? <laughs> I know. This is, it's, it's one of those instances where like, is this how you start an episode? I have a 45 minutes, like omitted fart reel from the previous 30 episodes. <laughs> it would be awesome to see like, do you, by the tones of those farts, what sort of songs we can put together. Venture Bros album, maybe? Probably. We can get some like audio expert to like piece together what exactly you had for lunch that day. Kebab, 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 kebab. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, By the way, I, I'm was, starting um, to realize Hey Pooches has kind of become our, like, you know, Howard Stern Hey Now. That's kind of true, actually. And me saying what up, what up, I've, I've, I've listened back a couple of episodes and that's always what I say. Yeah. It's all, like, you know, the one bit we didn't script, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just like naturally formed. Um, but yeah, how's, uh, how's your week been? Uh, <clears throat> so far, so good. Um, I've been having, how do I put this? Uh, I've been, I've been getting news over the past, like few days and weeks that have confirmed some of the investment choices that I made like three or four years ago. Does that make sense? Wow! And now it's just like kind of smugly waiting for congratulation texts. (laughs) True. This, this you, I'm guessing you have your fingers over like your keyboard, just like immediately type. I told you so. To everyone, uh, I've wa- I've honestly I've wanted to do it more than a couple times, <laughs> right? But yeah, yeah. how's uh, how's shit going in LA? Uh, have, you, have you fought I mean, any homeless people recently? <laughs> have you been not yet uh, flatulated on <laughs> by any disgruntled uh, homeless gentleman? I, I I've been kind of like subconsciously filtering that out now. So so the the, the answer is I don't know, but um. I uh, know. I mean, it's it's been nice, kind of getting into spring, SoCal weather's kind of pretty. Baseball's back. Um, Baseball's back. Yeah, I like it. Um, but yeah, along that, you know, work is definitely you know ramped up in a good way. You know, scaling, expanding. You know, jurisdictions that we cover and collect on the on the abstract data side, talking to new people, um, customers, traveling, doing all that type of stuff. So it's a it's it's a good type of chaos, and and it's not putting out like existential fire after existential fire for once. So it's, it's a, it's chaotic, but it's, it's welcome. I like it. Sweet. I have yeah. already booked my first uh, post Ramadan trip. Oh, guess where, where? To? guess, guess, guess. Um, guessing. You want a hint? Is it like, yeah, yeah. Cats. Oh, it's simple. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of it's a good go-to. I like yeah. it. Yeah. You, you can never get bored of Istanbul. I don't know what it is about that city, but it's cool. Yeah. It's also, like, um, it's, it, it's sort of East meets West. So every time you hear like the, the Fox news commentators saying like, you know, the Muslims are coming for Europe. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just imagine right. a Europe dominated by like uh, Islamic sort of culture. And you have a good, good idea of what Istanbul feels like. Yeah. That's a great I, way of putting it. To, to be to be fair, that that I mean that that country's fate has been much closely tied to uh, much more closely tied to Europe than the Middle East, at least in the last in its last like hundred years or so of relevance. True, um, true, true. Yeah, I think I think it's much more tied to like European culture, but traditions are a little bit Middle Eastern or like Arabic at least. But yeah, also it's the same I body wish... hair and yelling. <laughs> true, it's like Turkey, Greece, Italy. Also, when you go down south to Syria, Lebanon, the land of bald yeah, men so, and gold chains, and <laughs> gold we'll chains, an unusual penchant for hummus, <laughs> cigarettes, coffee, and screaming. That's it. <laughs> Traffic. <laughs> Traffic. <laughs> no, but this is a. I, I was going to say this is this is another instance where I wish we were more of a video podcast than audio one because I wanted to show everyone my bodega cat study. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Wait, stand up. I don't know. I've been I've been following it for like some time now. Like hey. I I've, I've loved that account so much. And it's now I just wear it to account. all my meetings. Yeah. But, yeah, it, I'm a fan. The of other it. day I saw a tweet that like Twitter is basically, you know, a flashlight of bad news that you hold up to your face. Oh, right. So, I have a couple accounts, like a couple art accounts and Bodega Cats accounts and, and those kinds of things. So every now and then like between the catastrophes and impending doom, 
I get like a kitten. So it's right. nice. You got to mix it up a little bit so that you don't, uh, you know, jump off a building at any point. True. True. It's, it's a nice yeah. pleasant break from the doom scrolling. Yeah. For sure. Also, also I like, I like getting the occasional updates from like the Sino guys. So apparently the, oh, yeah. the latest thing is Falcons. Oh yeah. Falcons and specifically, that? specifically with, 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 uh, one of the Sino guys, uh, Falcon sex hats for some reason. Yes. Dermot. Peak shit posting right there. Yeah, I don't know if I can say his name, but you know, let's okay, let's make him famous among both of our listeners. Yeah, so Dermot of uh, Sino, and we had a back so, and forth so, about him. Okay, so, so, here, okay, so a falcon sex hat is a hat that is made specifically for falcon breeders to literally put on their head, so that uh, a male falcon will come and um, come. mate with it. But yeah, anyways, <laughs> to, to mate with it. <laughs> we have finally gone over the line on this podcast. Um, but yeah, that's how they, you know, collect a sample and then I guess sell it or you know, breed it or mm-hmm. whatever. So why a hat though? Why not like a, maybe a glove or like something you can hold? That's, that's, uh, it's weird. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, I mean, can you imagine like one of those like British Royal weddings, just Falcons looking overhead, looking down, seeing like, wow, so <laughs> many options. <laughs> True. True. That might, it must be a, quite a dream to be a Falcon. Uh, but, looking um, down at a British wedding. But yeah, no, go, going back to the main point, I think definitely uh, tweeting tweeting back and forth to the Zino guys has definitely been uh, quite, <laughs> been quite an experience. I've been, I've been I, I honestly so can't think of any other like GPs who uh, are as freewheeling as they are on uh, on Twitter. What I love is that they don't do any of that pretentious like Twitter thought boy bullshit. Oh yeah, this philosophers basically. Yeah. What, what was the word yeah. that came up? What was what was the word for Twitter philosophers? Um, I don't remember. Was there a word for that? Yeah, that was like a, a good insult, but I forgot what it was. But uh, anyways, oh. speaking of uh, the bad news, flashlight. So, uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, we we talked about this a little bit off air, but I want to bring it on air. So people in in LA kind of are getting the feeling that the the music stopped. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, pretty much right now, from 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 2020 up until this point, it's always been a, like money's free, throw it around, everything like that. But recently, just talking to my personal network of like founders and investors, and just looking at some of the content they've been churning out, the the US VC scene, I guess, to make it a bit more general, has been facing a little bit of of like a reckoning slash correction when it kind of comes to how they valued startups in their portfolio. Um, I've seen this a ton on my timeline of a lot of VCs talking about founders raising down rounds, uh, startups even closing their doors after raising way too much money. Um, and we actually did an episode about that not too long ago on Fast because what was it? $10 million monthly burn, 121 raised, and they were able to get 600K in annual recurring revenue. Um, I spent more so on parking goes... in New York City, but okay. <laughs> True. Um but um, yeah, I mean that's that's it's pretty much what we're we're kind of noticing now that there have been a lot of companies where, you know, the ground's beginning to shake a little bit, and those companies with not strong enough of a foundation are starting to falter or have to like raise at very horrible terms last minute just to keep their business afloat. Um, you know, from a founder's perspective, especially from an early stage founder's perspective, you're kind of told to take money wherever you can because you just need the money in order in order for your business to survive long enough to hit either positive cash flow or like product product market fit but um like some of the terms that these founders have been raising that just don't make any sense given the actual metrics of the business and i think that's basically been because of everything that's been going on with like the money being thrown around and it being seemingly free so that's basically resulted in them you know raising at horrible valuations and not even attracting any investors. Um, we have heard of a lot of people who are like basically turning around and, you know, starting to triage just like we, just like what we saw in, in 2020, like starting to triage a lot of their startups and basically going, Hey, okay, these are kind of dying. These are fine. And, and, and making sure that every, every company, in their portfolio is kind of. That's happening already in LA. I mean, I know people are kind of getting jittery here and there, but not to the point where they start, you know, allocating graves. Yeah, so like my my one dis, like disclaimer to that is like I've so I follow a lot of VCs on Twitter and a lot of them have been saying things like that of you know 
this this company was uh, uh, just a simple sketch on a on a napkin, and they raised it like a thirty mil value valuation. Now they can't mm-hmm. have anything pretty much. Um, like but, Launch House basically saying like, oh, we'll figure out what to do with the money. <laughs> yeah, Launch House re- recently raised like a thirty mil thing. I think their latest. Actually, right before we started recording, I clicked on uh, my sidebar here on my MacBook, and I saw that Axios is reporting that Launch House is, is uh, not pivoting, but it's starting a newsletter and kind of joining the whole content creation side of things. So very curious to see what A16Z saw on them, but I guess that's just a waiting game. Um, the, the, the weirdest point about this that I'd like to point out is that kind of doesn't seem to be the case all around the world. So people are talking about corrections and down rounds and, and startups shuttering here in the US, but once every now and then on my in my doom scrolling, I see, you know, investors that are bullish about India, Latin America, Europe. But out of all of them, the one that I'd venture to say, no pun intended, um, that, that I've seen the most is MENA. So Middle East and North Africa. Um it's seeming to be that those industries and the comp- the companies coming up out of there are meeting a lot of the characteristics that we set in a very, very like long ago episode about what it takes for there to be a large domestic incumbent of being able to export technology, um, you know, being software based, solving things on a global scale and not being limited by uh, borders or anything like that. We're seeing a lot of players come up in MENA that do meet those characteristics, and that's resulting in some ridiculous rounds being raised. Yeah, the party is not over here. I mean, I, again, no. I was in Dubai uh, a couple of days ago um, talking to some people in the ecosystem there, and I, it is it is not over. Mm-hmm. Uh, the party yeah. is very much still alive. And honestly, it, you know, the entire region is built on one commodity price. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, if you have a Bloomberg terminal, CL.1, so <laughs> that's just price yeah. of oil. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I haven't said CL.1 since I worked at a bank. That's how long it's been. But yeah, it's uh, you know, it's the it's the price of oil, and everything is really is, is kind of derivative of that. But right. Um, but here's the thing about VC. Okay, like right now we're talking about oh shit's really bad, blah blah blah. And then you know this time mm-hmm. last year is like you know party hasn't even started yet. Everything's gonna be amazing. And then that exact time the year before in 2020, April 2020, it's like oh my god, we're all dead. Everything's done. VC is done. Electricity is canceled. We're going back to horses. <laughs> You know, Pretty much. it's the, the thing is, you know, there's a lot of ebb and flow in VC in the very short term. Mm-hmm. And ultimately it just works on these like very long cycles. And also anything you do in VC, it takes a really long time to figure out whether you're any good at it or whether the fund is any good, whether the company is any good. Um, look, I, it's clear now that, you know, you're in LA, but what you're talking about kind mm-hmm. of it bleeds into the rest of the world because American VCs are beginning to look abroad for alpha. Um, mm. Sorry, it's banker term for returns on top of what you know market beta generates. That's alpha. Anyway, oh, um, yeah. beta is just moving to the market. Um, mm-hmm. So, and there's so much liquidity right now, and it needs to go somewhere, right? <clears throat> now, the the problem with markets as illiquid as VC and as long term oriented is that it can take forever to discover that shit is actually going badly either as a fund or an individual investor, or sometimes even as a founder, you know, maybe, that, maybe less so as a founder, but. So is yeah. that simply because you just need to wait for those quarterly reports from all your, all your portfolio companies? It, it, look, imagine you're at a horse race. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as the horse race starts, if, if you have a camera and you take a picture of the race, like two seconds in, you have no idea who's going to win that race. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You got to wait till really the end of the race or towards the end of the race to really figure out who's going to wind up where. Uh-huh. But the the problem with that is well, the problem in this case really is that you know a horse race is minutes, um, mm-hmm. and a race or or, or you know a, a VC cycles years. You right. Know? So your horse race is going to take three to five years to to, <laughs> to really figure out who the winner is. So. Sure. Look, I remember having a conversation with my former boss. Right, um, uh-huh. he, he's now the CEO of uh, Flowered. If you're, I mean, if you're at oh, all yeah. alive in the region, you've heard of the company. It's it's doing pretty uh-huh. well, you know. It's it's actually doing phenomenally well. But um, so I remember I was just discussing with him how bad of a founder, founder I was with my first venture. I was really bad. Like I sucked. Like in retrospect, there were a hundred things I would have done differently that did not occur to me, you know, as a twenty year old. Interesting. Um, yeah. What was your first but, venture? My Validus. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. It was a train wreck. But you know, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I, I remember saying something to my former boss, something to the effect of like, oh, I think uh I think I'm a better investor than I am an operator. And he just kind of jokingly said, you know, we'll, we'll see, you know, mm. and the, the point there, by the way, is you are not going to know whether you're a good investor two or three quarters after you've made your investments. It's going to be a yeah. while to discover whether you're, you're good at it or you suck. So, right. um, and again, cause you know, you're talking about who's going to win a horse race, like whether you've placed the right bet two seconds after the race begins, who knows uh -huh. you're going to have to wait. So True. here's the thing, a VC, just because of the way it's structured, like a, a VC can like suck fees off of funds for like five to 10 years and the capital is contractually locked in. So by year one, two, three, they can look like they're sucking by year three, four, but still have money to call and deploy after that, you know? Interesting. So they can keep making bets or shitty bets with other people's money before people figure out that they suck. And then the failure comes in when they fail to raise fund two. You know, oh yeah. The failure is not while they have the cash and fund one. Uh -huh. So I made a lot of my bets in VC around 2018, 2019, late 2018 to late 2019, kind of weighted heavily towards 2019. That's when I was the most active on behalf of my former investor. Now, since then I've done a majority of consulting work and not really actively deployed capital. So all the capital being deployed was in that time period. Well, 90% of it, you know, and, um, you know, I watch the performance from afar because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer affiliated with them. I don't get reports or anything like that, but I've watched the J curve form and the J curve is basically, it's a chart that basically proves, um, well, okay. So on the chart, you have an X axis of, uh, time and a Y axis of returns. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you start at coordinate zero, zero, right. You know, and then, then time goes on and the J curve, by the way, is referring to your net asset value. So wh where your portfolio is marked overall, mm -hmm. you know, right. And then the beginning of the J, obviously you dip below the X axis because your losers will lose long before your winners win. Interesting. Um, okay. And then as time goes on, the overwhelming majority of your returns as an investor will come from the series C plus, uh, you know, long-term growth where you really see the value of having bought the share at pennies instead of the dollars, or, you know, whatever it may be at, at series C plus. Yeah. You know, so, that, yeah. Going back to like the initial point you said, specifically that your losers begin to suck before your winners start doing really well. Yeah. Is that because the winners also seem to be following the path of sucking before they actually like hit PMF or hit that thing that's going to work for them? Sometimes. Like yes. And sometimes there are these okay. like rare kind of um, one-off issues that are unique to that um, particular startup. So right. in, in my portfolio, the deals that I did, there was 10 deals. Okay. Uh -huh. Three were in Mina. Sorry, um, uh, 10 deals, right? There, there are four winners out of those 10 deals. There are six that are either now dead or going nowhere, clearly. Um, and and there's three uh, of the four winners in MENA and one in the States. Okay. So a couple of days ago, one of the winners raised $170 million at an undisclosed pre-money valuation. I actually know it, but I'm not going to say it because they would rather I not do that. Um so when they when they marked that uh, when they marked that 170 million dollar valuation at that pre money, um, that basically cemented the fate of the portfolio of, as being a winner. So out of the four winners, that was the first Series C. The other of the of the remaining ones, like there are the ones who have raised B and the ones in sort of in the process. So it stands to reason that they will continue to mark positively and continue to perform well. And uh, so it's safe to say now, look, I'm very tempted to give you the current multiple uninvestment cap uninvested capital of that portfolio, like the actual NAV. Um, I'm not going to do that because again, I'm not affiliated with them anymore uh, with, the, with that former fund, but uh, you know, I don't want to ruffle feathers, but I will yeah. say this, if, if, if that is the performance of fund one, two, two, like, like three years after most of the investments were made, um, there should be absolutely no problem raising fund two. Which I mean, 100%. I thank God because I mean, I thank God because it's it's a relief to me to know that I don't suck, <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, I, I may not be Mark Andreessen, but I didn't I didn't bomb it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you you have his level of meme posting and shit posting on Twitter though. Yeah, I, I can I shit post it, basically. Yeah. But so yeah, I mean, I feel a vindicated, b relieved that to say that I have the skill set that generated this return. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I also want to say, like, you know, I I've learned a lot watching them succeed. And I have learned also a ton watching others in my portfolio, as well as you know, investments not in my portfolio fail. 
So failure really is the best teacher, you know? True. Yeah. And if, if you learn too much by observing too much failure, then you fail as an investor. Yeah. You know, and these are the things that happen, by the way. So over the time period we're talking about, okay, we're talking about basically the, the Fed rate increases basically being canceled in 2018, going back to low rates, you know, mm-hmm. or slowed down back in early 2018, there was talk of inflation, blah, blah, blah. It's going to come bite us in the ass. And that never happened. And then basically things went back to being super dovish. Right. Um, so that happened. 2019 was a, a pretty good year for most people, you know, economically speaking. Uh, 2020 was the disaster, right? And then, you know, right. making it through 2020 and coming out of that in 21 and things normalizing towards the end of 21, uh, only to have a couple of lockdowns in Europe and whatever back in, in late 21. So now that things now start to feel normal again, looking back on the last three years, some serious shit has happened. And especially during COVID, I really thought some of the, my winners would die. Interesting. Um, in fact, three of my winners, I was, I, I really felt like, holy crap, they're going to die. And this is going to be the worst portfolio that ever, that ever happened. Right. Like I'm going to have to go back to investment banking. Cause I can't work in VC ever again. Wow. At least that's, that's what I thought, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, thank God since then things have like, you know, turned around, but um, sure. yeah, but you know, I, I've seen, I've learned a lot from, from the catastrophes. Uh-huh. Uh, and even I, I've learned a lot from how some of the winners navigated COVID. Um, for, for example, like, you know, the, one of the winners is in the food business. So uh-huh. you can imagine what happened to revenues around 2020. Oh yeah. 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 It, it was scary for a lot of people, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, um, to, to chime in a little bit, it's also yeah, like yeah. the, the shift of perspective of VCs looking at founders and how they survived the pandemic. I think there's, there's now like founders that fit two types of buckets, like where we are right now in history, which is founders that have survived, like survived COVID and then founders that got started in COVID. And I was talking to one of our investors and he basically mentioned how like, you do notice that their, their, their priorities get shifted. The way they run their businesses are just completely shifted because so many things have changed around Mm -hmm. COVID and like the new norms now that happen due to COVID and work from home and all that type of stuff. I remember talking about this, um, about an episode in, in, um, just had a brain fart, just an episode of a really long time ago. And, uh, like it was basically, you know, right now as, as a, you know, employer in the startup space, salaries are crazy because, um, you know, before it was, you had to go through an interview process and submit your things and move across the country to start a new job. And now it's pretty much just wait for a new work laptop to be mailed to you. Um, and then, you know, poaching is going on, all that type of stuff is going on. So there's a lot of focus that's happening on the, on the like HR people ops side, on the engineering side, you know, changing your infrastructure because all of your developers are not under the same roof is a completely different thing now. Um, yeah. A couple of things here and there that we've noticed, like COVID has really changed what it means to just even operate or be in a management position at a startup, not even like C-level. Yeah. Um, and and what we're kind of noticing as well is that, you know, the startups have kind of adapted to that or the startups that got started and immediately ad- adopted those, those like ways of working are the ones that kind of survived. But speaking to your point, the ones that ended up failing, um, like, I, I I think it's, 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 it's a nice, you know, as, as bad of a failure as something is on someone, you know, pouring your heart and soul into something and having it like, Mm -hmm. uh, sink pretty much. Um, there's a lot that you can learn in hindsight, which, which gives you like 2020 vision, right? It's always like, Mm -hmm. Oh, if we would have done that, we would have been like, 10 times the size that we were at that time instead of like nothing. Yeah. And it's um, so easy to like Monday morning quarterback and like, Oh, so obvious you should have done this two years. And like, no, no, it was not. Okay. Yeah. Cause a lot of very yeah. intelligent people were kind of mulling this over in their heads. And we all came to this decision that ultimately turned out to be wrong in unison uh, later on. Right. Um, True. Yeah. Look, when, when you're investing, okay. Uh-huh. Um, knowing that it's going to take forever to find out whether these investments were worthwhile or actually return their capital or the portfolio does well. Like it, it takes, it, it takes age. Like it's the, the aging is like similar to like when you're talking about human years and dog years, right? Uh-huh. Like, you know, you, yeah. your portfolio may have aged like 20 years in two human years or like three <laughs> or four, you know, maybe pretty much. So, I see that just in terms of like the, the immense growth, like imagine being in a room like with, five babies in it. And then in, in, in five years later, you know, two of them are, are like still babies, like two are like age three, four. And then like one of them is like 25 years old. That's what it feels <laughs> like 
looking yeah. at your portfolio in VC in real time. Um, yeah. But look, every every deal you make is every deal you make has to be made knowing that this deal could be potentially the deal that returns the entire fund in case everything else in the fund goes to shit. If you right. do not, that's if you do not law, see a right? situation, yes, exactly. Pareto uh-huh. principle, power law. So if if mm-hmm. you don't see um, any conceivable situation where that deal could potentially be that winner, you you shouldn't uh-huh. really make you shouldn't make the investment. Right. So, and then you know, as time goes on, uh, people, you know, sometimes do well and, and sometimes they do poorly. And when they do poorly, it's almost never because of a reason you foresaw. almost never never you know so okay you know what you want to make this like a little bit juicy as well as educational let's do it so look i'm going to mention like a few reasons behind some of the failures that are both um in my portfolio and outside of my portfolio okay okay from the ones outside of my portfolio there were like deals done by friends where i had some more insight than just a stranger Uh um or or maybe i turned them down at one point um right <clears throat> which you know as an investor you've turned down like infinitely more things than you've said yes to because that's just the way it works so true um uh okay so i i know a business by the way that was a data analytics business that relied almost entirely on uh data that was drawn from a single api from Ooh. a a social media provider that's okay? bad yeah so the business was doing really really well so long as that api was functioning okay and yeah. we got a we got a taste of what would happen in case they lost that data when at one point you know the provider of the API changed something up about I don't know how the call functions or something and then it basically oh. it broke the site. Um, oh shit! Yeah, so uh, you know it was weird like seeing it almost like die and come back to life over two days. Yeah, but you know that's when you, that's when you, the, the idea is really cemented in your mind like yo if they if anything ever happens to this API we have nothing. So yeah, I'm kind of. The, it's it's to, to speak on a point of that because that's like I'm glad you, you you dived into like the technical failings of that because what's what's very interesting is that you know from there there's always like this is very similar in terms of a historical parallel and I think I mentioned this last episode as well but the reason Google you know pretty much outperformed Yahoo when they were both like very you know pretty much like stalemates in the in the whole search engine industry. Um, and that's because Yahoo basically took existing components that they just restructured to make the back end of their search engine. And then Google took the time, seemed to be growing slowly initially, but took the time to build everything from the ground up and have complete control over all their systems. Yeah. Um, one is way more expensive and it's much more of a long process. And if honestly speaking, if I was a VC, I would have gone like, you guys are taking forever. What's yeah. what, like, what gives? So I'll just like, throw <laughs> all my money into Yahoo. But Sometimes it's no. tempting to actually, um, you know, start putting money in the person who puts together a solution with a hack as opposed to a ground up solution, just because it generates revenue faster, but doesn't hold True. up in the long run. Yeah, um, and, and it also by the way, buys like, you a lot of time to just refine. Yeah, it. to localize that reference. By the way, let's say like you have an oil refinery, uh-huh. you know, and uh, your source is a hundred percent one foreign seller. So if that foreign seller is suddenly like under embargo, and you can no longer import oil to your refinery what you have right. is like a, a $10 billion paperweight. Pretty so, much. <laughs> yeah. So again, this, this API business. So the thing is what happened was the provider of the API had a, had a fight with a number of their core clients who are in a particular industry. Uh-huh. And that, that, um, that social media uh, provider uh, basically decided um, we're going to cut off anyone who has anything to do with them. Wow. And they did that. And the company went belly up. It was just fucked immediately, just not immediately. Like they had other revenue streams to rely on, but it really just didn't go anywhere compared to the core, core business, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It it was, it would be actually, yeah, it it was a disaster and nobody foresaw this, by the way, it was not in any of like the risk forecasts that we had put together, deciding to make the investment never. Okay. Yeah. Um, So I know of a business that imploded because they didn't see eye to eye with the tax authorities of the main market they were operating in. And the tax authorities oh. basically decided like, no, you actually didn't comply with this particular tax law. And they retroactively assessed and charged them with a, a huge tax bill. Um, huh. And, you know, the tax authority and the startup disagreed quite a bit and quite publicly over the way this was, le- the, the tax was levied. 
and yeah. um, I, you know, finally they they lost all appeals, and and the burden was levy, and the um the the tax burden was you know decided by the courts that you know it's a legitimate tax burden, and you do owe it. Um, wow. and it collapsed. And you know, by the way, a lot of people know exactly which one I'm talking about, but I'm committed to not mentioning names of any VCs or founders or uh, right or startups. But this one was this one was the the famous one. Like you probably know exactly which one I'm talking about. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So it's. I mean, um, I think I, yeah. I I do have a question about that of like, as so as a founder, especially if you're like a, a bit more of a proactive VC checking in on a founder that's in a position like that, you you want to make sure that the founders are on the right track and focusing about focusing on the thing that's going to give them PMF or give them whatever metrics they need to hit to hit to to raise the next round, right? Um, what what do you like? Imagine you were like a VC or an investor in the startup and you saw them basically spending all their maybe legal resources or most of their raised money or raised funding just on lawyers to fight this yeah is that kind of a necessary evil that's just should should have been a red flag raised while you were doing dd or is it just a is it just like a nobody saw this coming and that's it just like need to bite the bullet and keep moving I mean, sometimes if 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 it's one of those nobody saw it coming things, but it happens after the round closes, and then the legal bills bite into the overall strategy or the overall um, fund set aside for executing the strategy, then everyone's like, "All right, that's unfortunate, but we have to do this because you know taking a bit of a loss is better than shutting down the business because we can't fight it." Um, right. What really sucks would be the timing of this issue. Uh, rearing itself prior to or during a raise, and then people chicken out because they don't want to finance a lawsuit. Oh, true. You know, so that's yeah. that. You know, that's an issue too. Like, I've been part of a deal, by the way, where all of us were like kind of sitting on our uh, hands, waiting for the uh, ninth uh, district uh, court in San Francisco to rule on something, which would basically decide whether this company's business model was legal. Wow. Yeah. And then, by the way, that was the first and one of the first times in my life I read through an entire like legal decision. Interesting. Yeah, all the goodies are at huh. the end, by the way, where it says hereby ordered by their honor, whatever, you know. But yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you got to read through the minutiae to find out that you're actually in the clear <laughs> before you write a check for a quarter million dollars. So yeah, it makes me it makes me question a lot about like, you know, the the the, the people kind of throwing in a ton of money into like Web three startups and like NFTs and all, all that type of like those new budding industries, basically. Because I remember like. Uh, to, to keep with your your rule of not naming names, um, there was someone on Twitter who recently said, you know, don't do DD for early stage companies and just like throw the check their way. Yeah, that was right? it was it was me and um, I think Maddie Graham responded, and then I threw in uh, my own little yeah observation. I, you know what? Let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. Yeah, yeah. Please do. I, I had a good chuckle at that one. Elizabeth Yin, Hustle Fund. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. So basically, she had she had tweeted earlier. A lot of angel investors think they need to do a lot of due diligence on a company before investing. Uh, and then Maddie Graham kind of quote tweeted it, saying, uh, "Worst advice of the day." And then Elizabeth responds, <laughs> "There's no correlation between due diligence and having a winner." <clears throat> and then uh, Maddie um, says, "Obligatory at VC brags." And then I chimed in, you know, my infinite wisdom. Um, uh, oh, yeah. There's clear correlation between doing zero DD and being torn apart by wild dogs at your next LP lunch. <laughs> because that's what would happen to me if I was investing money on behalf of people. And I told them I did zero DD, by the way. True. I mean, regardless of stage, just it's kind of even like I skimmed through venture deals a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And I know how, like, just you got to do DD, basically. Dude, I mean, I'm not saying you need to do the same DD like private equity does before they buy out like a $10 billion company, but you, right. you still need to do some sniffing, right? True. Like if there's a corpse, yeah. you just smell it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I've uncovered some weird, I've uncovered some like really weird shit during founder DD. But um, I, I'm I'm actually I'm not going to go into that on air. No. I will tell you yeah. after because you would not believe me what I found if I told you what I found. But um, I'm very curious to hear about that. It would do it. It was so sketch. Okay. All right. Next. Moving on. Um, <laughs> next. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Reasons for failure. I know a founder that bailed out and started a second startup while the first one was never formally shut down, and all the investors like you. What? Where the fuck are you going? 
like our money is in that what? business, you know? But uh, here's the thing. Technically, he, the founder did not do anything illegal, um, or did, nor did he break any contracts or anything, because there was no paperwork saying that he couldn't quit. Um, Interesting. But still, like, you just human decency, right? Or just, yeah. if you have any kind of ethical, yeah. Anyways, uh, I know a founder that, <laughs> oh, this... Okay, so this is where the where the the real shady shit began. So, uh, a okay. huge red flag for me is a founder that was ever um, implicated in any like financial impropriety, right? If if okay. ever like it's a founder that was like investigated for this that whatever like money, I I wouldn't touch them with a ten foot pole. Um, uh-huh. So I, I know a founder that like grossly misrepresented the financial position of the business and was basically paying out of pocket to sustain the burn, like just to keep the lights on. Um, and they were lying about the source of funds. Um, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. So the numbers were fudged. The numbers that were going out to the in- investors internally, the quarterlies had some bullshit baked in. Interesting. And, yeah. 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 And, uh, obviously they couldn't raise again. Of course. Because nobody would give them a nickel. Right. Um, yeah. and the thing imploded, but, um, oh, I know How of a biotech you- startup, by the way, what are you going to say? Before we get to that? Yeah. I do have a question. Yeah. How'd they get caught? Uh, b- basically, they were one of the the VCs who had led the prior round confronted them saying, this doesn't add up. Like, where's the money coming from? It's not it's not investor money. <clears throat> it's yeah. not a loan. It's not revenue. Where's this money coming? Like, how can you possibly sustain the burn for this long? And then the founder pretty yeah. much came clean because it was indefensible. Wow. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, I don't have COVID. I don't. Um, I don't. Yeah. I just got tested. Um, so yeah. I know, I know, I know a biotech company, by the way, that was operating in China. Oh. And um, it basically imploded because when the, when the lockdown happened in Shanghai, uh-huh. they could no longer access the live cultures. Um, that was you know, part of their business. Oh. And since nobody could tend to them in their contained uh, climate controlled environment. Yeah. They died. The cultures died. So COVID literally killed their business just because they couldn't go to the office? Because because bacterial cultures need to be tended to uh in order to make sure that the um uh you know the ongoing research, you know, they, they just they basically nuked the R and D, right? They gotta go back to the investors yeah. like you know, that thing we were working on forever, it, it's all dead now. I don't know, I can't even finish it. Wow. I mean, I think <laughs> I think it would actually be very an interesting parallel that I think I I'd want to dive into after hearing about something like that would be like the hard hardware space yeah you know if they were working on or doing some serious r&d with super limited runway and all of a sudden you can't you like you, you just can't go to a we work or you can't go to your yeah. office and actually build the thing that would be scary really scary how, how many people do you think walked away from their laptop left it at work and then the lockdowns came came in effect in shanghai and now they can't even get their laptop from work i i would not be surprised if that was like pretty much everyone who just works at an office <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah. Dude, the Shanghai lockdowns were awful, but we're not gonna. That's a tangent. We're not going there. That's a little bit, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, so again, looking back on my portfolio and portfolios of friends who have invested, and just seeing the reasons things have collapsed, uh-huh. there's just, I don't know. Sometimes like you just look at it and like, bro, of all the times we went back and forth on the potential things that could yeah. kill this business, do we ever mention this ever? Nope. You know? <laughs> no. Yeah. It's just it came out of left field, right? Yeah. But um it, yeah, it, it's just it, it's it's impossible to foresee, but of the ones that succeeded, okay? Mm-hmm. Of the ones that actually did well, I would say they stuck to the script no more than 50% of the time. So compared to what we saw when they raised money back around the series A time, around between seed and A, right? Or right after A like a, a bridge. Yeah. Um, you know, we're presented with financials and we're presented with a long-term vision for the company. And the number of times that matched up perfectly with where they were when they raised C is not like B or C, by the way, is not, uh, they didn't execute absolutely exactly everything they said, because, you know, good founders react to changes in markets and can, you know, quickly reposition themselves and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's to be expected. Like I would never like you don't go to a founder who just raised a magnificent series C and say, Hey, you didn't do what you told me you were going to do a series A. Like who gives a shit, right? Things changed, market right. changed. When they raised money, yeah. COVID didn't even happen. So like that, you know, that changed a lot of things. True. Um the success is is in being properly reactive and 
you know, protecting shareholder value and growing it so much in such a period of time, even if it includes plans that were never thought of before, like right. not conceived of prior to, I don't know, like a week before they're executed in some cases. Yeah. Can I, can I mention two, two scenarios where that just like widely succeeded? Yeah. So, so there's two off the top of my head that actually came to mind about ridiculous pivots that somehow ended up paying off, but um, Slack, Slack was trying to build, be a games company first, from what I understand. And yep. They just they just built out a super well messaging system. They were like, let's just, let's just do this, then screw the games. Yeah. Um, and it basically resulted in where they are right now. And I think one of their biggest customers are Amazon too, using uh using Slack as well. But um another yeah. one that's actually very interesting is actually the video game industry. So it's a specific game. Um, but you know, there's this one game development studio that was pretty much building um a a, a battle kind of a, a battlefield type game with uh cars and then one day during development someone decided to like draw up and place a ball in the middle of this battlefield and they kind of realized like oh shit this is very very fun just like <laughs> playing soccer with your car and a ball and that's how rocket league actually came to be born and and that's where you know rocket league is now one of the bigger like esports games with massive tournaments going on tons of money going around that's pretty like it, it kind of speaks to just the the high entropy of this industry in space. It's like w- a what if that takes like an afternoon to put together it turns to billions of dollars in a couple of years. Yeah, this is basically how VC works, which is something a lot of people don't understand. It's like a lot of these looks like some some decent ideas, and we're gonna invest in a whole bunch of them. At the end of the day, 20% of them are gonna return almost all the returns that the fund generates. And yeah. one or two of them are gonna like return the fund many times over and make our careers. You know, true. And then the industry very quietly buries its dead. So exactly. At least the way my portfolios end up looking. All right. So you can kind of divide it into thirds. The bottom third is dead. Okay. Yeah. The medium third is like dead on the brink of dying and basically just kind of surviving and not going anywhere. Right. The 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 top third does it does well. Like, you know, they're growing, growth is good, decent margins, they can raise more money easily. Um, but the very top is the creme de la creme, which is just what makes the fun, you know? Yeah. And that's, that generates like a couple of X returns. Yeah. And VCs will spend a lot of time talking about the top third, including the ones that weren't the super, super, super winners, you know? Right. But the, the middle and bottom third, that's very Mm -hmm. quietly buried the dead of night unmarked grave. I do. (laughs) True. I do. I do have a question though, because I'm actually curious. Yeah. How does you know, how does your relationship with a founder change as they fit into each of those layers of a portfolio, if at all? Um, okay. Again, drawing on personal experiences, this is in no way a commentary on VC as a whole. Um, right. So the, the, the top third, um, they're the ones who like kind of appear in the, in the funds uh, pitch documents for the next fund. Um, oh, right. They're the ones who, you know, the relationship with them is fairly well publicized. They appear together at public events. They invite them over to dinner quite a bit, that kind of a thing. Yeah. And then the the middle court, the, the middle third um, ends up being, you know, it, it's still a warm relationship, you know, because, you know, you, you've been in the trenches with them. You tried to help them out in your capacity as a board member or just as an informal advisor. Um, they're good friends. Uh, so even in my case, in my portfolio, two of the uh, companies that wound up in that kind of middle and lower zone, uh, the founders are still very good friends. I text them every now and then, <clears throat> you know, it's just, you understand that like, this is, this is the game. And sometimes the game fucks up, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's good. And w- with the ones that fail outright, it's just a kind of a healthy camaraderie, you know, it's, you know, things didn't go well and it's all right. There's always a next time, but it, occasionally and like in, in the cases of failure that I mentioned where there was like some clear uh, malfeasance. Uh, that's yeah. when it gets like toxic and vile and threats of lawsuits and how dare you. And um, right. so that, that happens with some VCs. There are other VCs who straight up write it off and do not care at all. Um, yeah. It's just like, all right, it didn't work. Okay, fine. Shut down the company. Bye. You know? Yeah. And it's just, it's, I think the, the best VCs are the ones who are utterly unemotional, um, mm-hmm. but still somewhat compassionate no matter where the founder's uh, startup lies in that like kind of three thirds structure. True. I think this goes back to like a very, a thing again, mentioned a really, really early episode of ours when we were interviewing John, John Franco. Yeah. Um, 
where he said there's a lot of emphasis in the DD process or even the, the relationship between VCs and founders that's placed on the founder's character too. Yeah. Cause, cause they can be a great, super smart founder that just like happened to learn the lesson the hard way with his initial company. And then the next one's going to be the thing that's going to generate like a crap ton of returns. Right. Um, cause I feel like that, that is also something that, that should be emphasized as well, but also, you know, LPs don't care about the founders. They care about mm-hmm. the business and its returns. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. But, yeah. um, it's just just naturally how things kind of fall into place really again this is in my experience like i've seen um it just kind of you know again tangentially like people working in other funds and whatever like i've heard stories of horrific terrible lawsuits that just never resolve um, oh yeah but that's also a, a really bad look for a vc you don't want to appear to be suing founders um the only time i think vcs are willing to sue a founder and actually get that kind of attention is when there's a lot of money on the table Oh, right. um, like, you know, Bill Gurley versus, uh, Travis Kalanick is a good example. Oh, was that because yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, for, uh, for benchmark Uber was the absolute super winner in that portfolio. Um, oh, and there was a falling out that could have like gravely affected the value of benchmark shares, at least in their opinion. Uh-huh. Um, and hence that lawsuit, right. Whereas if Uber was a company that did very poorly or kind of middle in the pack, they probably would not have bothered with the lawsuit because, they'd lose more to the lawyers than they ever made in the investment. Um, yeah. Or a, a, a more than they uh, ever committed to the investment. Um, yeah. So, you know, everyone's talking about, okay, the startup uh, markup party is kind of coming to a close in the U S mm-hmm. um, maybe a little in some other, some other markets, but I, I got to say, I'm not, I'm not getting a sense of that just yet in, in Mina. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, as, as much information as I can kind of take up on Twitter, there's, there's, it does seem like just general sentiment of this, the startups and VCs and everything in the U.S. is a little less than the way it is right now in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and even yeah. surrounding areas like India, those those types of industries as well. Well, for one, uh, we don't have the inflation fear of the U.S. just yet. True. I mean, it's yeah. still spoken of here, but it's we we don't have local inflation of eight and a half percent per year. Um, even with local currencies being overwhelmingly pegged to the U.S. dollar, by the way, uh-huh. so that's something a lot of um, outsiders don't know about the GCC. Is that, is that yeah? Is yeah? I was, was going to say, is that because most of the LPs don't make their money, just make their money from oil, which is the commodity that's prices going up ridiculously right now? But then again, the LPs are not making their money directly from oil unless you're dealing with like a, a state entity, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so so the, for, for the people who are not familiar with how the economy is generally put together in this part of the world, when I say the, this part of the world, I'm talking about the Gulf Arab states. Okay, yeah. So the the Gulf Arab states, um, overwhelmingly, the way the economy works is the econ- the economy is basically a function of how much oil is drilled and sold. So oil is a nationalized commodity in each of these countries. There's no such thing as a private oil field owned by an individual or a corporation. Right? right. When you hear stories of Chevron and, and Shell and whatever setting up operations here, th- th- it's not their oil. Okay. Those are oil field operations. They can make profits off of like satellite services from the oil operation, but it, it's not their, it never goes on their balance sheet. They don't own it. Okay. Right. So, anyhow, so all the oil coming out of the ground, basically the proceeds of the sale of the oil goes to the government minus a couple contractors here and there. Um, and the government maintains a state monopoly on all the oil. And that's true for anywhere in the Gulf. Uh, 90% of the people, um, by people, I mean, primarily citizens of these countries. And it's an important distinction because these countries have enormous expat populations, um, going up to like 90% almost in the UAE. Um, so 90% of the citizens of the countries are, I mean, they have salaries that are paid directly or indirectly by the oil sector from government revenues from oil. Um, this gives them, by the way, incredible purchasing power per capita, like very high GDP per capita, very high spending and credit is available and so on and so forth. So these individuals then as consumers go out and fill the coffers of pretty much every company operating locally. So if you have, say, an F&B, uh, if you own like a tw- 20 restaurant chain between Kuwait and Saudi and the Emirates, like a lot of your income is going to come from people who work in government jobs and are getting paid from oil revenues and then come to your restaurant and spend. So everything is ultimately a function of oil. The non-oil GDP 
in most of these countries is very, very low, with only the UAE, UAE being divergent from that, with approximately 30% of their GDP coming so far from non-oil, and that share is accelerating. And right. that trend is going to begin to be more obvious in the other GCC states as time goes on, because we need to diversify off of oil, right? Yeah. Um, so, so, and oil right now, by the way, is unusually high because of the situation in Ukraine. So we had the opposite situation 2013, 14, once oil fell off a cliff and we were talking about like $20, $30 oil and yeah. everyone was panicking and, you know, it, it was different times. And even like home prices, every time oil dips, like falls here, not because the government has cut salaries or anything of the like, but because there is just that it, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. People expect a slowdown coming because of dips in oil prices and therefore prices tend to fall into deflationary force. Um, right. So while the situation today in 2022 in Ukraine is still hot and it still affects the energy markets and Russian oil is still on the brink of embargo or under embargo, depending on the country, um, the high oil prices are still generating incomes way above what was forecasted um, for this region by regional governments prior to the situation in Ukraine transpiring. Right. So all that excess income has everyone living carefree and living it up because it's just been a huge economic boom. And again, inflation sure. here is not as bad as it's getting in the US and Europe. So people are retaining more of their buying power. So for that reason, uh, companies that are um, focused on this region in terms of generating their revenue, um, yeah, nobody's really forecasting dips in purchasing power right now. Everyone's still, still living the high and everyone's yeah. still posting you know, crazy, uh, uh, the markups will continue basically is what I'm saying. Yeah. The music will keep playing pretty much <laughs> at least until so long as the, the, the energy markets are still super high in the sky. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I don't foresee any situation where oil falls like sub $50 in the next like year or two, it's not going to happen. Unless someone like overnight discovers like nuclear fusion energy and it's yeah. just like mass adopted overnight yeah. well i mean they're mass adopting nuclear fission right now everywhere like everyone's putting up right uh so yeah. that'll definitely have you know even with all of those pressures oil will not fall into irrelevance over the next 12 months right so for the next 12 24 months i think the party will continue in mina and with it the markups and with it the startup activity and the rest of it um yeah. and there are companies that are doing you know quality business and expanding quite quickly and, and you know to the founders credit is yeah so it's not just mania it's there is actual growth yeah um, i think i think that's that's the point i was going to bring up like for a lot of founders right now you know founders might not be too well versed in economics or any of the stuff but it is it does present a very massive opportunity to jump on any idea you have because money's going around not because of inflation and you can pretty much work on any idea that you have in any industry and you know, speaking to the point about the large domestic incumbent, like if you have a problem that you're trying to solve that speaks to people across, you know, boundaries or borders or anything, it seems as if like now, if you're in Dubai, for example, it's just the perfect time to get started and work on that. Yeah. I mean, also, you know, one thing going well for Dubai is since it's becoming the Web3 hub, it's mm -hmm. it's attracting so mina vcs have not gone all super crazy on domestic web3 just yet a lot of the money into web3 in dubai is still coming from foreign investors so there's right. a lot of chinese investors and indian investors who have stopped looking in china and india because of the political opposition to blockchain and right. moving it all to dubai because dubai has been very open and hospitable to people from china and india and businesses from china and india for long before web3 was an investment target so yeah. By default, they're they're kind of happy to go to Dubai and invest there. Um, that influx of capital is also keeping things moving, at least in the Web three space in Dubai. Until the locals pick up, until the local VCs rather pick up um, or start demonstrating more interest in that field. So right. yeah, there's there's a lot of reasons that the party is not over. I don't think the party will be over anytime soon. Um, yeah, I, the only the only downside I can see, at least for the next 12 months in the MENA region, would be uh, consumer inflation shooting up. And um, look, there, there are three uh, markets of concern around here, uh -huh. uh, the UAE, Saudi, and Egypt, and then everybody else just sprinkles on top, let's be honest. Right. Yeah. Um, so 
UAE and Saudi do not have worrying inflation, at least in, right now. No, nobody's really talking about inflation that much, like the US. Right. Uh, yeah. Egypt is more at risk of inflation, particularly food inflation, because we all know the cascading effects of the fertilizer issue in, in uh, Russia and then the lack of fertilizer exports, lack of grain exports. Um, Egypt used to be a huge recipient of all that. And so they're forecasting large increases in food prices. It is possible that increases in food prices in Egypt will cause consumers to tighten spending a little more. So if you have a startup in Egypt that focuses on the consumer segment, it's entirely possible that you will begin to see a bit of a squeeze. If you're an F&B in Egypt, you may see a huge rise in, in earnings just because of uh, uh, you know, people, you know, there's an increase in, in demand and also an increase in prices. Right. So yeah. if you have an increase in price and quantity demanded, this, you know, basic econ, do the math, your rise, your earnings are going to rise, but right. you know, non-food consumer, we'll see how it goes. It's a lot of guessing on my part, but it's potential risk. True. True. It's fun though. It's cool seeing like industries outside of the U S kind of grow and balloon be massive incumbents and like because because i kind of speak so that the the you know tech tech is like not only going all around the world but it, like it goes back to like a16c's thing of like software's it's kind of eating the world right now so yeah so good times to be a, a lot you know the, the vc landscape changes so so much between like you know if you if you if you look at it as six month periods right as two halves in a year sentiment and expectations and what's hot and what's not can change so much in those little windows. But what happens in VC as an investor, as a founder, you need to look at you know a, a solid like five to ten year block to make a, a serious assessment of uh, how healthy a market is, how sustainable a market is, um, the true changes that have occurred decade on decade or half decade on half decade. It's um, yeah, it's it, it's the same reason they tell you to hodl, right? Because yeah, it, maybe it, you know. Bitcoin may be dumping right now, but uh -huh. you know, hold and in five years will be a different story. And it's the same for the market, just in general. True, true. You, you don't want to be the poster of a tweet that says, I sold Bitcoin at $8 because I couldn't help it tank even further. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <Oops>. yeah. <laughs> that's like Oops. saying, I exited the MENA market because things aren't stable. Like that's nuts yeah, because they weren't stable much. for a week. You know, <laughs> paper handed so, people can't yeah. deal with them. Anyways, 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 what are you doing the rest of the day? Uh, work really, it's part of the, the whole ramp up of shit that I need to get done that I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the episode. So, yeah. might, um, you know, bury, bury my face in my keyboard today and tomorrow so that I can kind of take a little bit easy over the week, but exciting stuff. I mean, doing a lot of, you know, meetings and, and, and interviews that I wish I can just like non-stop talk about because there's like very very interesting stuff going on but i think uh i'll i'll just i'll just text it over to our our two listeners uh in the event that this is because this is posted publicly but yeah one listener if you don't count mom yeah <laughs> true who's the other listener dan hey dan yes <laughs> hi oh i gotta go back and edit out the cuss words oh true true right <laughs> You're gonna get angry texts. <laughs> How dare you? We did not raise you like this. <laughs> That's fun. How about you? What's your uh, what's your weekend look like? Uh, honestly, I, I have a ton of work. It's work um, as well. Well, I mean, it's the final week of Ramadan starts. I mean, we're in the final like what nine days. Yeah, um, and stretch. I realized that a lot of a lot of the people that I'm working with are intending to take Eid off and begin taking it off like a day or two before it formally begins. Um, oh. And so everything it's just crunch time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to get it out of the way because I'm I, I really don't want to work on stuff when I'm in Istanbul. Smart. Yeah. yeah. How long are you going to be in uh, Istanbul for? Like ten days. Nice. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, sounds like quite a reset. It is, man. I um, yeah. I love travel. True, same. Yeah, LA, LA is pretty. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I do give it a lot of shit, but every now and then, like, I'll find you know a nice little drive. I'll go down to like Redondo Beach and OC and all those places. And it's like SoCal still has its charm, but 
you know, every now and then changing that completely and going to like Seattle, New York, like places, Chicago, maybe places like that are just, yeah. it's a nice reset because you get to see more of the, 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 the country and it's like, true. Yeah. W- wish I could do more of it with my, uh, with my unfortunate founder salary, but yeah. soon, soon. <laughs> All right. All righty. Peace. Bye.